This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. So, we have been exploring this idea that God opens doors. And we've acknowledged that, that first of all, God's the one who opens those doors. He, he provides them opportunities. And it's important that we know that they're coming from Him. And it's important that we know how to uh, recognize them. This is uh, whatever you're back to PowerPoint. That we know how to recognize it and that we know how to choose between those doors. Door A or B or C. Because often He opens more than one opportunity. We've talked about this idea that sometimes it's easy for us to think that a door that opens, a door that is providing an opportunity, that it's providing an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity for us to, to improve our lives, to improve our setting, to, to make improvements and more comfort. Because of that, because we tend to think that those opportunities are for us, we developed this thing, we talked about it last week, FOMO, fear of missing out. We're always afraid that somebody else is having more fun than we are, or building something neater than we are, or, or discovering a better way to do something than we are. And if we're not careful, we buy into that, and before you know it, everything that we're doing starts to feed that. But the truth of the matter is, we saw this last week, that the reason that fear of missing out exists is because we, we really were made for more. We really are missing out. By the way, isn't that probably what you experienced as you watched that video? Almost none of us said, I am so glad I don't know somebody that, I'm so glad I don't have to do that for somebody. Almost every one of us thought, that would be so neat. <coughs> Sign me up. You see, we were made for more. We just have to be reminded that the more that we're talking about isn't more for me, more for us. Biblically speaking, open doors are divine invitations to make our lives count with God's help for the sake of others. That's where we left off last week. And what we said as a bridge to this week was that the secret of the open door is that it appears most often when we stop obsessing about our own self-advancement, and when we look instead for opportunities to love and serve others. I've heard people leave churches like they leave jobs. Well, it just wasn't, I wasn't, wasn't being used to my fullest potential. It wasn't taking advantage of all of my gifts. I wasn't feeling fulfilled. But as soon as we remember this, we realize that as long as there is one person that we can minister to, that we can be a blessing to, you can be on mission with Jesus. Which brings us to this story this morning of the book of Ruth. And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to the book of Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. The book of Ruth, the story of Ruth is... is is so unique in the scriptures. It's uh, one of only two books that are named after a woman. It's probably written during the reign of King David, written down 
The author is unknown. But the, the things that are happening in the story were happening during the time of the judges. And it's the story of Ruth that helps us begin to see the story of salvation as a love story. The story is set in the time of the judges, one of the darkest times in the life of Israel. A time of moral decay, anarchy. There was, it was a time of weak faith and irresponsible conduct. In fact, Judges 21, this is what the Bible says about describing that time. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We're not careful, often people will define the American dream that same way. Which, by the way, is why you as a believer feel this internal conflict so often as we live our lives. Because in the midst of all of the comforts and all of the freedoms and all the safety that we enjoy, this is really at the core. And our spirit, that part of us that is new in Christ Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, it chafes. It knows that is not the way God intended life to be. <clears throat> Ruth is a woman who stands out. In a day of moral decay, she stands with moral character. She lives way above the average of her day. What she does and how she responds is unlike any of her neighbors, any of her peers, no one on her face, none of her Facebook friends, nobody responds the way Ruth responds. And I want to say up front that this story, although we're just going to really skip through it very quickly, will tell us something deep down inside. Listen for the Spirit of God to teach you something important today. So, the book of Ruth starts like this. We read this in the beginning, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, basically you've got Jews, and, and, and suddenly there, there's no work, there's a recession, there's no food, and he says, maybe we're going to do better in Moab. Moab is a, as a, 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 when we say nation, it's kind of like more in the European sense, it's just a small group, a small area, but we're going to move over northeast of the Red Sea, let's go over there, I heard maybe things are better there. Now there's a lot of background about the Moabites that we just, we just won't take the time to get into, but... The Moabites are not the same as the Canaanites. Uh, the, the Canaanites, God instructed Israel to wipe them out. They were so evil. That's not true of the Moabites. The Moabites, they came from kind of, it's kind of a sordid story. Remember when Lot and his daughters, and there were no, there were no men, no husbands for their daughters, and so they basically tricked their father into getting them pregnant, and so they would have it. It's just, it's bizarre. But to make a long story short, from, from that action comes... That's the lineage, at least, of the Moabites. Um, they were idolatrous. They were they didn't worship the God of Israel. But but Jews weren't disallowed from marrying them. It wasn't it wasn't a sin. They just they couldn't enter the temple. Moabites couldn't enter the temple. But it wasn't a sin to marry them or to interact with them. Just a little background. Well, 
Let me kind of fast forward through the story for you. So Abimelech and his wife Naomi, they moved to Moab thinking things will be better. Things weren't. By the way, there's even a lesson there. You know, do you leave the place that God planted you even when it's tough? They left and they found it tougher outside of God's will. Well, anyway, they're in Moab and uh, things aren't a lot better. And then, at some point along the way, Abimelech dies. And if you know anything about uh, life in, in this time period in the East, women, without a husband, you really had almost no future, no security. You were hoping that then your children would take care of you and would provide for you. Well, then ten years after Abimelech dies, the story says that both of her sons died. So she's in a foreign country, she's a foreigner, her husband has died, and now both of her sons died. I, I just, this, just, what, yesterday I think, saw a post from a pastor friend of mine, his wife just passed away. And he posted a picture of the two of them sitting at the table. He simply said, such fond memories. My heart broke. Some of you have known that kind of loss. Here she is experiencing that loss over her husband and then both sons. And not only the relational break, but no hope, no income. Well, the story goes on. It says that then Naomi heard that God had blessed Bethlehem back home and that the drought had been broken, the famine was over, things were getting better there. And she says, I, I, I guess I'm just going to go back home. And so she starts for home. And at the, some point during the story, uh, we read that she, she heard that I mean, as she was traveling back to Bethlehem, trying to make things a little bit better for her and her daughters-in-law, she turned to these girls. She realized, you know, there's really nothing waiting for me back home. There's even less waiting for you guys. And so we read in verse 8, Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husband and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. It says, And then they wept loud. And they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. Both daughters said, No, this has been so hard. We're not going to abandon you now. We will go back with you. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? I am going to have am I going to have more sons that you could become they could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. So what she's saying is, I've got no future to offer you or to help you with. She goes on. Even if I thought there was still hope for me. Now, remember that, by the way. That tinge of hopefulness. I mean, uh, hopelessness. Even if I thought there was hope for me. The implication is she doesn't. And even if I had a husband tonight and I gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. And listen to this. She says, It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. The truth is, we can all understand why Naomi would feel like that. It's also interesting, though, that as much as she loves these two daughters, she still thinks it's worse for her than it is for them. Well, anyway, the story goes on. At first, both women said, No, 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 we don't want you to go on alone. But finally, Orpah, one of the daughters, says, oh, okay, I'm going I'm to go back. And she goes back to stay with her family. 
And although she's never criticized for that, she's never condemned for that, she's also never heard of again. Uh, Oprah, Oprah is until until she starts her TV show. <laughs> um, see now, Ray. Okay. Um, so I want you to notice the setup of the story here. There are two daughters, <coughs> two doors open. There are two options available. Ruth chooses differently. Verse sixteen, we read this, and this is probably one of the most beautiful, poignant passages in literature, not just in the Bible. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates me from you. Wow. It's quite a commitment. Especially since, for Ruth, this is probably the, like, kind of, a, she's being sentenced, it's a lifelong sentence of singleness and poverty. And still she's devoted to Naomi. So the question this morning is simply, well, we're impressed by Ruth's commitment. But before we talk about that, why in the world did Ruth commit herself so fervently to Naomi in the first place? I mean, was she just a nice person? It's very interesting. If she was raised a Moabite, she was raised outside of Israel. She didn't know the God of Israel. But it's very clear from the way she conducts herself that in this interaction with Naomi and her son, she came in contact with the law of God. She came in contact with the God of Israel. And she had clearly become a believer, a follower of Yahweh. Later we see her trying so hard to, to follow the law, to do what God would have her to do. So she's a believer, but is that enough to make her this committed? I mean, after all, we just saw that uh, you know Naomi was pretty convinced that she had it worse than these girls. Naomi was ready to abandon the two of them. Why would Ruth not abandon Naomi? Naomi really thought, you know, you could hear the pain and the bitterness. To be honest, she was a little bit more focused on her pain even than their pain. Why would Ruth commit herself? There's at least two reasons. One is that Ruth obviously values obedience to God's law. And we're going to see that later in the story as she again tries to do what the law has taught in terms of how this thing should be conducted. So Ruth values obedience. But more importantly, Ruth chooses to love Naomi in a way that mimics God's loyal love. The Hebrew term chesed. It's loyal love. This devoted love. In fact, if you want to try to define Chesed, you almost have to just read Naomi, Ruth's words to Naomi. Your people, my people. I, I'm not going anywhere. You are the center. I'm sticking with you. That is God's loyal love. He said the same thing about Israel as a nation. You are my people. <coughs> you see, the way that Ruth 
is loving Naomi, is using the idea of love not the way we do, not, not a feeling. Now, loving feelings are wonderful. But Ruth seems to see love as a verb, as something that you first do. And, and nowhere did God tell her to do this. She's not being required to stick with Naomi. She would have been fine to go try to find another husband back in her home country. This isn't required. God didn't instruct her. She did it willingly. She bet, Ruth bet everything on love. She bet the farm. I, actually, I think James, the writer in the New Testament, would have improved. James writes this. He says, uh, Religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless, it's this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I, I think James would probably approve of Ruth's love. He, he had heard this story before. Well, the story goes on. And, and uh, in chapter 2, we read that these, these, three, these two women, uh, Ruth and Naomi, they travel back home. Now, and again, oh boy, there's so much background. But what you have to understand is, again, these women have no standing. They don't have a home. They, they're, kind of, they're, they're kind of homeless. How do you get money? There's no social security system. But the law of God provided that as harvesters would harvest, that there would be little corners of fields and, and, and things that, that would get left in the field. And Israel was instructed to leave those things there so that those who were poor could come and collect them. In a sense, it was sort of a way to give some kind of payment to them and make sure that they were fed. There was an entire national system set up like this. And so, right away Naomi says, okay, Ruth, you're going to have to go, it's, it's harvest time, luckily, so they've got food. You're going to have to go to a field nearby, and uh, hopefully you find favor with the guys that are working there. Because even though the law dictated and directed that these things be left out, a single woman out in a field with a bunch of work hands was clearly still at risk. Nobody around, no, no, nobody to call for help. You, you kind of, it's kind of risky. At the very least, these guys could say, hey, get out of here and chase her away. Or worse. But in God's providence, she ends up by gleaning at a field of a man named Boaz. And this is what I, we have to see. I think this is important in the story. It's not, it's not explained exactly. We simply see it. Ruth's kindness to Naomi set in motion circumstances that would then eventually come full circle and allow, Naomi, allow Ruth to be the recipient of kindness from someone else. <coughs> so she goes and she gleans. And it happens that she goes to this, the field of Boaz. She doesn't know Boaz from Bozo. Okay? She, doesn't, she doesn't know who this guy is. But she gleans, and, and, and the men that are there are respectful of her. Boaz notices, he knows who she is. The story tells us, because everybody in town has already been talking about the fact that Naomi <laughs> came back. She's been gone for so long. She came back, by the way, you read the text and they say, is that really her? I mean, I think the years have been hard on Naomi. They almost didn't recognize her. And who's that with her? A servant? Well, no, that's her daughter-in-law. Really? Well, why didn't she stay home and get another husband? 
She committed herself to it. Really? And everyone has heard about this, this love, this loyal love that Ruth has for Naomi. But everybody's talking about it. Boaz, watching his men, says, hey, that's her? Wow. In fact, at one point, he says, hey guys, as you're, as you're collecting, leave extra down for her. Okay? Like, anybody that would be that committed and loyal and sacrificial, like, he sees the character. Yeah, leave more. And, and then there are several interactions between him and uh, Ruth. Ruth goes home with some some of the food. Naomi's like, wow, you must have hit it big. You know what field did you go to? This guy named Boaz. But Bo Bo Boaz? Boaz is a family member. And what you have to understand is that the Old Testament law allowed for if, if, if a woman's husband died, and if that if her husband had a brother, and, and again, we can't we can't get our heads around this. But the, the husband was instructed to actually go and have a child with her so that the line could continue on. And we're like, Whoa, okay. But, but that was normal and actually the right thing to do in that culture. And, and so, since there were no brothers, there was this law where if there was an extended family member, they could be given the chance to kind of come in and produce an heir for their brother or for their extended family member. One of the terms, this, uh, this term of uh, kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer. So Boaz and Naomi both realize that there, there's actually, we're, we're related in such a way that I might, I might be the one that would have a chance to kind of rescue this family. And he's impressed with Ruth and her character. Like, wow, she is some important Amazing woman. The story goes on. As soon as Naomi hears about this, she starts playing matchmaker, like every good Jewish mother would. And, and as I read the text, and not everybody agrees with this, but to me it sounds like she sees that God might actually pull this out of the fire for them, but she still seems like she's manipulating a little bit. She, she actually says, hey, go get a bath, dress up a little bit, put on some perfume, and go meet Boaz later in the day after everybody's been celebrating and it almost sounds like she's trying to say, you know, get him to kind of become attracted to you. Now, it's clear that Boaz is actually already older than Ruth. He says, why would you be respectful to me? And, you know, I'm older and you treat me like you could go find a younger husband. But Ruth does what she's told. And then at that point, it's Boaz who kind of comes to the rescue that night when something could have happened. He gets up and goes, what are you doing here? Um, okay, look. Uh, it, I like you, and this can work. We've got to get you out of here. I don't want anybody to see you. I don't want your character being spoken about. And so he kind of protects her. To make a long story short, Boaz commits himself to showing kindness to Ruth the way that Ruth showed kindness to Naomi. And he has to go find it. There's another relationship that's a little bit closer to Naomi, and he has to get their permission. Do you, do you want her? And they have to kind of work that out. Boaz does that. He pursues that. And in the end, he takes Ruth as his wife. And suddenly, not only is Ruth provided for, but Naomi is provided for. And there is an heir. And by the way, Ruth's great-grandson was King David. And Ruth was one of those progenitor ancestors for Jesus. One of the women in his line. But what do we learn from this? 
We have to ask ourselves that. What lesson do you hear? What is it that's appealing and attractive about this story? What is it about Ruth's example that draws us in? What does the Spirit want us to know? See, the secret of the open door is that it appears most often when we stop obsessing about self-advancement and look instead for opportunities to love and serve others. Amen. Doors open when we notice and when we care about people who might otherwise be overlooked. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to say. You see, we all tend to find it easy to love some people. Generally people that we think are like us. People that like what we like, dress like we like. People that look and smell like us, talk like us. And it's easy to ignore those that don't fit in. What we learn about God's loyal love is that it tends to see the people that others overlook. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He says, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect. Not morally perfect. That's not even... Reflect the character of your Father, therefore. The Heavenly Father loves those who are far away. <clears throat> he loves those who are broken. He loves you and me. And this speaks to us, doesn't it? Even as we talk about merging churches and moving. And, oh boy, it is so easy to think about how wonderful it will be for us. Some of you who set up... We won't be sitting up every week. Yay! We'll be able to have fellowship and we'll be... Like, and, and all of that is true and it's delightful, but the, the, the warning from Ruth is this. Careful. The Father didn't open this door to us for us. He's giving us an opportunity to show kindness to others. We read this last week. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. <coughs> Not looking on your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He says, basically, in your relationships, act like Jesus. <coughs> so let's get this straight. Biblically, the open doors are divine opportunities. God opens them, but He doesn't open them for us. He opens them so that we can bless others. Sometimes an open door is an open heart. And when someone opens their heart to you, it's one of the most magnificent gifts that life has to offer. And so when somebody comes in and they're in a place of pain or turmoil and, and they open themselves to us, we get a chance to walk through 
to touch them in a way. It's funny, you know, when we think about uh, where our help comes from, I heard a story about a church in inner city Chicago. In this church, all of the seniors, my age and above, all of the seniors had adopted a school, actually a high school near them, kind of like we've adopted Hatfield. And many of them would go over. Some of them were lunch ladies. Some of them would kind of stand out by the buses during the coming and going time. And, and a group of them had signed up to be after-school tutors. One of these men, an 85-year-old man, white hair, white wrinkles again, in an inner-city school, had offered to be a tutor. And he tutored these young men every day. One day he was sick, he didn't show up. So one of the guys standing there says, Hey, where's my homeboy Art? Do you realize that stepping through an open door can let a white 85-year-old man become a homeboy? What a privilege. God opens these doors for us, for the sake of others. It isn't about us. And these doors open most often when we train ourselves to care. Learning to notice people. And, and, and you know, there's a skill associated with noticing these opportunities, and we develop the skill by just regularly loving. It starts with the person who is right here. So often someone will come, Pastor, you know, I just want to know what God's plan is for my life and, and how I can serve Him. And they're looking up there. And the kid's like, well, we're right here. Yeah, I know, these kids are getting my way. You know, what, what do you want me to do for you? Stop. Wait. I'm going to suggest, for not just you, but for me, that it's the person that's probably already right there in your life. That's the first opportunity to practice. To show loyal love. They have done nothing to deserve such commitment from you. You don't do it for them. You do it to reflect the loyal love that you have been shown by your Savior. And if you are willing to start right where you are, it is not surprising that God will open another door for you. And another door. And another door. And another door. And someone's going to say, well, how come she gets all the opportunities? <laughs> Do you want to be special? Do you want to make a difference? Do you want to be somebody that, that others talk about, made a big difference in their lives? They're probably sitting within 15 feet of you. They might live within 50 yards of you. They might be in the next cubicle from you. You're not waiting for something from them. They're waiting for something from us. Let's pray. <clears throat> now, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, we kind of have to back up to the first part of the story. You see, 
even when we were enemies of God, Jesus loved us. And He came and made the payment for our sins so that we could have a relationship with Him. It starts there. He showed us this loyal, sacrificial love. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, what would stop you from accepting the gift of eternal life today? The payment has already been made. He offers the gift because He loves you. No strings attached. But for those of us who have experienced that, let's remember why He did that. Yes, He loves us, but He loves the next person who needs to hear this message just as much as you. The only difference between that person and you is, you're fine now. They're not. I wonder, will we spend this next 90 days so engrossed in the logistics and the mechanics of, of moving two churches into one and remodeling a, a facility and forget why we're there? I wish I knew, the next person that's going to come to Crossroads, I wish I knew what their favorite color was, I'd paint the room that color. I wish I knew what kind, of, what kind of music they liked, we'd start doing that music. I wish I knew how they wished I would dress. Actually, I just wish I knew how to dress. <laughs> what is it that you are willing to give up on if it means somebody else can know their love? That is the story, not just of Ruth, that is the story of every open door. They open for the sake of others. If you and I use it just for ourselves, we have missed the whole point of what God is doing. But now we don't have to because He has spoken to us. Let's pray. Jesus, You loved us. When we were far from you, you sought us. When we were enemies of yours, you sacrificed for us. We mocked you and you bled for us. Your body broken, your blood shed so that we might know healing and life. Father God, by your Spirit, change our hearts. Turn us into those who shine this loyal love. Let us not just be recipients, but agents. And one day, untold, massive groups of people will be singing His praise. But only you and He will know the role that you play. We don't want to live for ourselves. So God, we ask, Jesus, change us. Break us. Transform us. So that what is done touches lives and brings you glory for your namesake. Amen.
Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.